Well, good morning, RCC. Like Andrew said, my name is uh, Trey. I've actually been here one other time before, about two years ago, before Ben was even here. And funny enough, Ben and I, even though we only live an hour away from each other, we only hang out in other parts of the country. We've hung out together in Oklahoma and California and Arizona, but we've never actually hung out together uh, here in New Hampshire or Massachusetts. So uh, I'm a good friend of Ben's. I really love your minister. I love, uh, you know, sitting around the table for this series. I love the meat that you've been getting from this series. You're getting a lot of good information uh, from Ben. I serve in Mansfield, Massachusetts as the associate minister at Cross Point Church. Uh, just about an hour away from here. Uh, so again, it's my honor and my pleasure to be here with you this morning. Now, like I said, I've been here one other time. Maybe I met some of you, maybe I didn't, but you probably don't know me very well. So if there's one thing you need to know about me, one of the most important things you need to know about me before we get started is you just need to know that I love food, all right? Any other food lovers in there? Yeah, I love food. I'm always thinking of where and when my next meal is going to be. I often think in terms of food. If you were to come to dinner at my house, we would be having dinner, and as soon as I swallow my last bite, I look at my wife and I say, what are we eating tomorrow, right? I'm always thinking in terms of food. A few months ago, my wife and I took a little weekend trip to Newport, Rhode Island, great little place uh, for a little getaway. We left the kid uh, with some babysitters, and we just had two days to enjoy together. And we decided that we were going to do some shopping. You know, there's all those cool little stores in Newport, Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, we hit our second store. And I look at my wife's face, and I'm like, you just don't seem to be enjoying our shopping excursion. Are, are you not having fun shopping? And she's like, yeah, I'm just really not into it right now. And I said, well, you want to just take our shopping budget and eat our way through Newport and eat the rest of our shopping money today? And she said, yeah, I think I'd like that a lot. And, and I fell in love all over again. And I knew I married the right girl. This is love. At last. This is uh, forever after. You know, I was happy. We ate through our way through Newport and we had a grand old time. I think in terms of food. And I think it's because so many of my fondest memories, the best moments in life, take place around a table with people that I love. I mean, have you ever noticed that you can often recall memories based on the food or the, the place you were eating dinner at? For example, I remember being in high school on Wednesdays after basketball practice. My mom would pick me up. I'd go to Wednesday night church. But before we'd go to Wednesday night church, we had to stop at McDonald's and I would get two Big Macs, a large French fry, and a large sweet tea. And it would be gone before we even get to the church. On Tuesday mornings in high school, my dad would get, and I would get up every week at 6 a.m. and we would go to Bob Evans for some biscuits and gravy. I remember those conversations with my dad with a big old pile of biscuits and gravy sitting right in front of me with hot black bitter coffee every Tuesday before school. Some of our fondest memories are around the table. I remember being in college. I preached at a little church in Kentucky and on the weekends, and I would go uh, to their house after church, to some of the people's house after church, and I would have some good old southern cooking with big old glasses of sweet tea. It's the best eating you'll ever do. I remember uh, late nights at Skyline Chili, which I know Ben talks about all the time. You've Maybe you've had it, maybe you haven't. It's life-changing. Late nights at Skyline Chili's with my friends in college, dreaming about the future and what ministry will be like. I remember as a high schooler taking my wife out on our first date. 
We went to Buffalo Wild Wings in the town over. I got 15 traditional medium-sauced wings, and then we went and saw a movie afterwards. I remember when it came time to pop the question, I took her and all of my friends out to an Italian dinner in Newport, Kentucky, and I just sweat the whole time while we were eating that meal before I finally asked her to marry me. I remember after our wedding at the reception, we had fried chicken and mashed potatoes. I remember that after we left the wedding, the very first meal we shared together alone as a married couple was Taco Bell. I'm romantic, right? That's what I had on my wedding night was was Taco Bell. So many of my fondest memories. I remember how bad the food was at the hospital when my son Griffith was born. Our memories are cemented around the table. There's something about the smells and the people. We've got wedding receptions and funeral meals and progressive dinners and Thanksgiving dinner and Easter dinner and Christmas dinner. We've got all these dinners that we often associate memories to. And so I think Jesus knew what he was doing when at the Last Supper, he uh, institutes one of the most important things for us to remember as Christians. He knew that this meal would recall in our minds what he has done for us. But at this Last Supper, he's going to redefine some things. You know, this is a picture of the Last Supper, and, you know, there's some controversy around this meal thanks to Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, and people have, you know, opinions about who was there and who wasn't there and who's represented and who's not represented, and this was a controversial meal, but not for the reasons that Dan Brown highlights in his book The Da Vinci Code. Rather, it's controversial because what Jesus is going to do is redefine everything, He's going to redefine how we think about the world. He's going to redefine our own lives. In fact, that's kind of the bottom line for today, that the divine redefines. If you remember nothing else, remember those three words today, the divine redefines. Jesus as the leader, Jesus as divine, at this table is going to redefine everything that we will recall in our memories 2,000 years later. The divine redefines So let's go to the first course of our meal. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 22. I think it'll be on the screen as well, but let's get into some of the context and background of what's going on, starting in verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. And he replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him, and at the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up that is where you should prepare our meal. And they went off to the city, and they found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Now understand, they're about to celebrate the Passover. Passover is one of the most important celebrations for the people of Israel. At its infancy, the Passover was a meal of haste. You know, they had their cloaks tucked into their belt and they were ready to go. They sacrificed the lamb. They put the blood over the doorpost. I think Ben talked about this a couple weeks ago. They were ready to leave Egypt when God gave the word. Over the years, though, the Passover had become a banquet. It had slowed down. It had become a celebration. And every piece of food and every liquid drink meant something special. It meant something significant for them to recall and remember. The Passover was celebrated in family units. And the Old Testament tells us that if you don't have a family big enough, that you could kind of make your own family. You could join with other families to celebrate this Passover meal together. And that's exactly what we see Jesus and the disciples doing. 
None of them are with their family. And so what's Jesus doing? He's creating this new family with the 12 disciples. And he sends Peter and John. He says, hey, you need to go to Jerusalem and prepare everything so that we can take this meal together. And they're like, well, who do we go to and what do we look for? And Jesus lays out everything of what they should expect when they get there. Look, Jesus is prepping the preppers. Jesus had already prepared everything before the people who were going to prepare everything actually got there to prepare things. You see his power and his prophecy into this situation. He already knows everything that's going to happen. And he tells them, he says, when you get to the owner of the house, tell them that the teacher, the head of the household, the leader of this ragtag group of disciples desires a place where he can have the Passover with his family. See, Jesus is already establishing himself as leader. Jesus is establishing himself as the one calling the shots. He's the one orchestrating everything so that they can have a place to celebrate the Passover. We could say that Jesus is the divine, right? He can see what's going to happen before they get to Jerusalem. He's calling the shots. He's the head of the household who will lead his family through the Passover meal. Jesus is the divine. But then as they get there, the meal begins, and Jesus begins to teach. He takes that title of teacher seriously, and he begins to teach. Here's how he continues in verse 14. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table, and Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. Notice two things here. Jesus says he's excited about this meal. And who's not excited about a meal, right? I get excited every time it's close, close to eating time. He's excited about this meal. And number two, he says, I'm going to suffer after this meal. And he's not talking about like indigestion or gas. This is nothing that Tums can fix. Jesus is going to suffer. We know how he's going to suffer. He's going to have the skin ripped from his back. He's going to have a crown of thorns put on his head, and he's going to be nailed to a cross. Jesus is going to suffer So he's excited for this meal, and he knows that he's about to suffer. And this is where things get interesting. Remember, who's in charge? Who's the divine? Audience participation? Jesus. You got it. You got A+. A Jesus is the divine. He's the leader. He's the one calling the shots. And in our culture, you would think, why does the leader anticipate suffering? Why does he anticipate suffering? When I watch a war movie, it's the general, it's the leader of the army who sits in the back and orchestrates everything and calls the shots. You don't see him going to the front lines to fight with his soldiers. Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer. See, Jesus is a totally different type of leader than anything we've ever experienced or encountered before. So why would Jesus anticipate this suffering? Well, first, it's because he redefines our attitude towards others. See, Jesus isn't like other leaders. He's unlike anything we've ever seen before. Remember, if you know this story, who's sitting at the table with him. We didn't read it, so let's backtrack a little bit. Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money, so he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Look, Judas, I personally believe, was disciple number one. He carried the money bags. I think he was one of the most important disciples, yet he was the one who would betray Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says, come sit at my table. Come sit down next to me and tell me everything you're thinking. Let's share a meal together. 
See, Jesus redefines our attitudes towards others. Jesus welcomes the betrayer into his table and around his table to enjoy food with him. The one who will suffer knows that the one who will cause the suffering is sitting right next to him at his table with him. Look, Jesus doesn't just stand in the back and give orders while everything else happens. Jesus actually enters into the filth and the evil of humanity and says, I will take this upon myself. In John's account of this story, we find out that Jesus actually bent down and washed Judas' feet. Jesus redefines our attitude towards others. And it's the same for us as well. With his inclusion of Judas into this meal, he's teaching us that we need to love our enemies. He's teaching us that we need to welcome people around our table that might look differently than us, that we might disagree with, that we don't necessarily like. He's saying, yeah, welcome them to the table. I've redefined how you treat outsiders. I've redefined your attitude towards others. It's about suffering, and it's about serving, and it's about humility. And he leaves us with a glaring application. Do we try to do what Jesus does? Do we welcome people to our table that look differently than us? Or is the table only reserved for close friends and family, people that uh, agree with us and people that we think uh, we actually like and want to be around. A few years ago, there was a documentary about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And in this documentary, it featured a Converse commercial with the two of them. And you may not know this, but during their playing days, they were not friends. They were not on speaking terms. I'm originally from Indiana, you know, the hick from French Lick. Larry Bird, he grew up just about an hour away from where I'm from. And in French Lick, they finally convinced Magic and Larry to come together for this Converse commercial. It was going to be, uh, they were going to play one-on-one on, on Bird's home court. And Magic Johnson arrives in the limo, you know, there's not much talking. It was really awkward while they're filming this first scene. And they break for lunch, and Magic goes out to his car to get in and drive away for lunch. And Larry Bird chases after him, he says, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. Magic says, what do you mean? He says, my mama cooked lunch for us, and we're going to go have lunch together. So they eat lunch together, and reflecting on that experience, Larry says, you know, I never liked Magic Johnson. We never got along on the court. But it wasn't until I was at the table that I met Irvin Johnson. Irvin Johnson is a great guy. Irvin Johnson is my friend, and they went on to be lifelong friends. In fact, when Magic Johnson was diagnosed with HIV, who do you think the first person he called to inform was? Larry Bird. Walls of hostility are broken down. Enemies become friends when you gather around the table. So here's my challenge for you. Before you post, before you respond, before you say any unkind word on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever your uh, poison of choice is, invite them to dinner. Invite them to coffee. Give them a chance to be heard. Give yourself a chance to be heard. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get a friend in the process. So he redefines our outlook towards others, but he's not finished. He continues in Luke chapter 22, verse 16. He says, for I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Understand, Jesus is not just changing the traditional language that accompanied this part of the meal. Jesus is going to point to something that every single one of us long for and that we hope to be true. 
He mentions twice the kingdom of God. I will not partake of this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is something that takes place after death. See, Jesus redefines our attitude towards others now, but he also redefines our outlook on the future. That's where Jesus' mind is. It's on the kingdom of God, and he lets them know, we will take of this meal together again once it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This meal that he's talking about will take place after death. In fact, Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, uh, says these, these words. It says, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus pictures a meal in the future. John, who had the revelation, pictures a feast with the lamb. Jesus changes our outlook on the future because he envisions a future feast in eternity. He envisions a feast that happens after death. In fact, this is what we all look forward to. This is why we endure now. This is why we uh, don't do things that we really want to do, and we do things that we don't really want to do, because we believe that we are called by Jesus, that we're journeying with Jesus, and that one day we will sit around his table at the eternal feast and celebrate everything that he's done for us. That's our hope. That's what we hold on to. That's what we cling to. And this is what Jesus is saying. Yes, this may seem like the Last Supper, but it's not because there's going to be another supper that we celebrate together in the kingdom of God. He says our current circumstances are not our eternal circumstances. Life will be changed. Life will be redeemed. And things will be made new at this eternal feast. This life is not all there is. There's more to follow. Roland Hill was a, a minister in the 1870s, and one day he received a large sum of money to give to another poor pastor under his leadership. And thinking that the amount was too much to send all at once, Hill forwarded just a portion along with a note that said simply, more to follow. In a few days, the man received another envelope containing the same amount and with the same message, more to follow. At regular intervals, there came a third and a fourth, and in fact, they continued along with those cheering words, more to follow, until the entire sum had been received. A great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, used to tell this story to illustrate the good things we receive from God always come with the same prospect of more to follow. He said, when God forgives our sins, there's more forgiveness to follow. He justifies us in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. He adopts us into his family, but there's more to follow. He gives us grace, but there's more to follow. He helps us to old age, but there's more to follow. He prepares us for heaven, but there's more to follow. Spurgeon concluded, even when we arrive in the world to come, there will still be more to follow. See, with this meal, as Jesus alludes to eating it again in the kingdom of God, he lets each and every one of us know that if we are in him, there is more to follow. Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says, In this sad and broken world, the Lord's Supper is a moment of joy because it's a moment of the future. That's what Jesus is looking forward to, that moment of joy in the future where we sit around his table. Jess Moody was a minister in Kentucky, Owensboro, Kentucky, and he befriended a young couple. And one day, the husband of this young couple called him and said, Jess, Jess, I've just received the most awful news. My wife's at the hospital. She's just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and she wants to talk to you. So Jess gets in his car, and he drives to the hospital to go talk to this young mother and wife. And he gets there, and, and she looks at him. She says, Preacher, preacher, 
I remember in one of your sermons, you said that a thousand years is like a day to God and a day is like a thousand years. Is that true, preacher? Is that true? I need it to be true. Jess looked at her and he said, yeah, that's true. It's what the Bible said. She said, good, that's what I thought because I've been doing the math. And if a thousand years is like a day to God, then that means 40 years is kind of like an hour. And I figure my husband's got about 40 more years to live and If I die and go to heaven, well, that'll only be like an hour to me. And I imagine when he gets to heaven that I'll look at him and I'll say, where you been? Did you run some errands? Did you have a good last hour at work? I really missed you while you're gone. She continued, and I figure if 40 years is like an hour, then 80 years is kind of like two hours, and that's probably how long my kids have left to live. And I imagine when they get to heaven, it'll only seem like two hours to me. And, and I'll look at them and I'll say, I really missed you. Uh, did you have a good day at school? Did you do all your chores? You, you know, moms don't like to be away from their kids. A few weeks later, the wife and, and the mother went on to, to be with the Lord and she passed away. And her very last words to her family was, I love you. I'll see you in an hour. See, Jesus gives us hope. He redefines our outlook on the future. This life is not all there is, but there is something more to follow. There's something more to come. And with this last meal, Jesus is teaching us that our future is redefined and we have hope of eternity. We have hope of everlasting love with him. There's more to follow. It's a feast unlike any feast we can ever imagine. But there's one last redefining moment. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. These are famous words. Most of us, if we come to church even once a month, you've probably heard these words before. They're spoken all over the world in churches all over the world uh, every single Sunday. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. We do this because of the new covenant that Jesus had established. See, here's what Jesus is doing. We'll get into the weeds with this for just a second. What Jesus is doing with this Last Supper is he's redefining our relationship with God. This is my blood poured out for you. With it starts a new covenant. A covenant was an agreement between two parties, usually a lesser party and a more powerful party. This was the type of agreement Israel had with God. God told Israel, if you follow me, if you obey my commands, if you search after me, I will be your God and I will help you prosper. But what happened to Israel? Time and time again, they chased after other gods. Time and time again, they failed to hold up their end of the agreement. They failed to hold up their end of the relationship. And as a result, God had to continuously punish them and correct them. And finally, the time came when he said, enough. My people will never be able to earn their way back to me. I have to step in and do something. And so Jesus came. Jesus, who was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he lowered himself to the point of a servant, and he was obedient to the point of death on a cross, and he died so that we could live, establishing a new covenant by his body and his blood so that the Passover lamb was new. The Passover lamb was Jesus, and he redefined all of us so that we could approach God and we could have a relationship with God. God forever. 
See, this new covenant redefines our relationship with God. It makes us possible for us to have a relationship with God, all because Jesus became that perfect Passover lamb that made it possible for us to be back in relationship with Jesus, with God. And when you put your trust in Jesus, when you say, I believe that you are the son of the living God and I accept you as Lord and Savior and you are baptized into him and you are raised to walk in new life, you are saying, I believe that this new covenant is enough to restore me back to God, not by my work, but by the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, with this meal, is redefining our relationship with God. That's why we remember That's why we celebrate it every single week, because Jesus lets us know you are now restored, you are redeemed, and you can enter into relationship with God, and God wants nothing more than to be in relationship with you. Look, when you were a toddler, you sat in a high chair or at the kids' table, and you wanted a place at the adult table with the big kids, the big people, and then you went to school, and you needed to fit in. And you wanted to belong in the school cafeteria, made it clear whether or not you were accepted if you had a place at the cool table. And then adulthood came and you worked and you contributed and you tried to survive and make your opinions known. And and when it came to how things should be done, you just wanted to be heard and have a place at the table in your life pursuits. And as you got a little older, you started to realize the beauty and the importance of family. And you would give just about anything to have that place at the table together with your family as you go through life. And maybe those words make you sad because you never found your place at the table in any of those areas. But along comes Jesus, who says, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how you failed. I don't care the mistakes you've made. My sacrifice, my body, my blood, my new covenant is for you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and you have a place at my table. And he breaks down the barriers and the caste systems and the pretense and the self-importance, and he forgives you, and he gives each of us a place at his table. That's the relationship that we have with God. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. That's what we imagine. And if Jesus can redefine age-old traditions, if he can redefine our outlook on death, and if he can redefine the way we approach God through him, then I know Jesus can redefine you as well. And he wants nothing more than to change you, to redeem you, and make you more like him as you journey with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for this this meal that you shared with the disciples because so many important things take place. God, this isn't just a moment that we celebrate every week. God, this is a redefining moment of history where you let us know that the way we operate with other people, the way we look at other people, the way we interact with other people is different. It's upside down. We serve them in humility rather than uh, try and um, climb over them to the top. Father, you even redefined how we think about death with this meal. You told us that this life is not the end, that there's more to come, there's more to follow. Death does not have the final say, but we will be in eternity with you. And thank God for Jesus in this meal because he lets us know that he has made it possible for us to be back in relationship with God. He has redefined how we think about God. He has redefined how we approach God, and he made it possible for us to be with him by giving of his body and his blood so that we may live. May we never forget that that's what this meal means every week when we celebrate. And it's in his precious name that we pray, amen.